I want to encourage you to be here tomorrow. We are going to be dealing with mental development for about 15 minutes before we start, uh, before we start the next topic. Um, really, mental development is actually an easy thing to accomplish if you learn one secret. And so I'm going to share that with you tomorrow. And then we're going to move into financial freedom tomorrow as well. And that's where the majority of our time is going to be spent. But today we have two more presentations where we want to finish up the subject of spiritual fulfillment. There have been two key truths that have surfaced in, in the last 150 years. Could two Two key truths. That have been embraced by many believers from many different denominations. It says in Ezekiel 33 verse 11, I say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take, what does it say? No pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why then will you what? Now, I agree with you, this is the worst news of the whole Bible. I wish this part wasn't in the Bible. Matter of fact, this is the only part of the Bible that I hate. And that is that it says that some people will be lost. I don't know about you, but I, I like God. I, I, I wish everybody would be saved. Amen. I know the fact is that not everyone will be, but I wish everyone would be, don't you? And today it says that when, when a person is lost at last, how much pleasure does God take in that? None. None whatsoever. We need to be very careful because there's two ways of seeing God this afternoon. One surfaced in the church of the Middle Ages. And we don't need to talk anymore about that. I think we've got the picture. Amen. The other is the kind of God that Jesus portrayed the Father to be. It's interesting in Luke 9, Jesus was on his way to Samaria. No, he was on his way to Jerusalem, but he had to stop in Samaria. And because of the prejudice that was between the Samaritans and the Jews, the Samaritans found out where Jesus was heading and they wouldn't let Jesus stay in Samaria overnight. It says they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, where had they gotten this kind of picture from? Elijah had called fire down from heaven. Do we believe that? I mean, think about it for a moment. What had the Samaritans done here? Talk to me or we'll be here to five. What have they done? They turned him away. They rejected him. What is God trying to get every person to do with his son, Jesus Christ? Not reject him, but what? Accept him. Here is a, here's a good example of people who were not accepting Jesus, but rejecting him. And James and John said, well, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and consume them? 
And Jesus turned to them and rebuked them, it says. And he said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. The most famous sermon in Christian history. Do you know what the title of it is? It was preached by a Quaker named Jonathan Edwards. Do you know what the title is? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. And don't get me wrong. I know there will be those who are lost in the end. But some of the ways that Christians have in the past explained the final fate of those who are lost has painted God out to be more satanic than godly. James and John were saying, shall we call fire down from heaven and consume them? Jesus turned and said, burn them just because they're rejecting me? You don't know what spirit you're of. Is there a way to take subjects in the Bible like hell? Does hell involve fire? Is there a way to take subjects like hell and communicate them in such a way that we're painting God in a completely erroneous light? Is that possible? Have there been many times where people have misunderstood what God is all about by misunderstanding the subject of hell? Has that happened? I want to look at what the Bible says about this subject biblically this afternoon. In Matthew thirteen thirty six, it says, When he left the crowds and went into the house... And his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man and the field is the world. As for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. The tares, they're the sons of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them is who? The devil and the harvest. Underline this. The harvest is when? The end of the age. The reapers are who? Jesus said, just as the tares are gathered up and what? Burned with. Does the Bible communicate this kind of language? Does it use this kind of language? Burned with fire. Has this kind of language caused people some frustration and and disconsternation when they think about God? I have some some a friend whose beliefs on hell are very vivid. And I say to my, I asked my friend one day, I said, well, how do you, how do you reconcile that? How do you live with looking at it like that? And do you know what their answer was? I just don't think about it very often. When you really think about it, are there some ways of viewing hell that contradict what Jesus told us God is like. Is he like Jonathan Edwards stated where he hangs us over the flames like a spider hang, uh, suspended by a thread over the flame of a candle tormenting and taking great delight? Is he like that? No. But does the Bible use this language? Re- the, the harvest where they're gathered up and thrown into the 
Does the Bible use this language? So we can't say it's not biblical, but we have to be careful how we interpret it. So in our interpretation, we don't say the wrong thing about the character of God. Do you understand my my passion this afternoon? We're not denying what the scriptures teach. Just as the tares are gathered up and burned with what? Fire. I want you to underline this last sentence, this last phrase. So it shall be when? Now, I don't want to add much commentary. I just want to take just what the Bible says. So far, when does it say? At the end of the age. Matthew thirteen forty nine. Jesus said, so it will be when? At the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous. They will throw them into the furnace of what? Fire. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, so far, when did Jesus say this was going to take place? At the end of the age. It's interesting in Second Peter 2, verse 9, it says the Lord knows how to rescue from afflictions those who fear him. How many are thankful for that? But it goes on and says, and he will reserve. What does reserve mean? Have you ever reserved something? It's set aside. It's saved. It reserves the wicked for the day of judgment to be what? Tormented. Look over in the gray section. The King James Version translates it this way. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and how to reserve the unjust unto the day of what? Judgment to be punished. It's interesting. Peter believed that the wicked were being what right now? Reserved. Till when? The day of judgment and what would happen on the day of judgment then they would be what punished i would like to share with you that the idea that the wicked right now are somewhere being tormented by flames is a belief within Christianity that surfaced during the church in the Dark Ages era. It is not what Peter taught, and it's not what Jesus taught. Peter said they were not being punished or tormented today, right now. They are being reserved till the day of judgment, which Jesus said would happen when? The end of the age, then to experience punishment and torment. And if you think about it just justly, that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, Abel, I'm sorry, Cain. How many people did Cain murder? One. And how long has he been suffering? Since the very beginning. Hitler, how long has he been dead? 50 years, and how many people did he kill? Millions. But he's only been suffering for how long? See, are you hearing me? I'm talking like modern Christianity today. How long has he been suffering? Not very long. Does that seem fair to you? 
that one person could be suffering for a thousand years longer when all they did was one thing and one person murdered millions and they're just suffering for a few years. But let me ask you, if they're all reserved right now, until the day of judgment to then be punished and then each one suffers according to what they have done, would that be just? Would that be equal and fair and balanced? What does the Bible really teach on this? In 2 Timothy 4 verse 1, Timothy, Paul wrote to Timothy, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead. This is when? This is when? Day of? judgment it says he will judge the living and the dead when does it say at his what appearing did paul throw it into the future in revelation 20 john actually sees this day of judgment it says then i saw a great white throne and on him who sat upon it from whose presence the earth and the heaven fled away no place was found for them i saw the dead the great small and great standing before the throne the books were opened another book was opened which was the book of life and the dead were what judged from these things which were written in the books according to their deeds the sea gave up the dead which were in it death and hades gave up the dead which were in them they were judged every one according to their deeds then death and hades were thrown into the lake of what fire this is the second death the lake of fire and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life he was thrown into where When did John see this happening? That it was taking place now? Hear me. Is the day of judgment future? How can judgment be executed before the trial has taken place? Are you hearing me? In the chronology of events, even in our own world, we know that judgment must take place first then the execution of that judgment must what? Follow. It makes no sense to say the wicked are right now being punished, although the day of judgment is in the future. Are you hearing me? That's a, that's a cross-section, that's a contradiction of logic. But would it make sense if we said the wicked are right now like Peter being what? Reserved for that. Judgment. Jesus taught this in John 5.29. It says, They will come forth. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of what? Judgment. They would go to judgment and then they would be thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus said it would happen at the end of the age. Peter said they're being reserved. You can search the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, and I promise you, you will not find one verse in all the Bible. I've done it. You can search from beginning to end. You will not find one verse in all the Bible that says the wicked right now are being tormented. What you will find is every Bible author always sees this as something which will take place in the future, not presently. I would suggest to you that according to what we've read, that no one right now is burning. I'm not saying they won't. 
but it's not happening right now. In regards to where, where will it take place? We, in, we see from these verses that the Bible indicates it will happen, but where will it happen? In Deuteronomy 32, 22, it says, A fire is kindled in my, what does it say? Anger, and it burns to the lowest depths of the what? Of the grave. It consumes the earth with its yield, and it sets on fire the what? The foundation. Notice what Peter wrote again. By his word, the present heavens and the earth are being what? Reserved for what? Fire. Kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with the roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and all its works will be burned up since all these things are be destroyed in this way. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by what the elements will melt with what? Intense heat, but according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness what? In Revelation 21, look in your grace section, Revelation 21, 1 there at the top of the second page. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth have what? Passed away. Understand, there is a day of judgment that is coming. The wicked are being reserved. And when that day of judgment comes... Judgment is going to be passed. And once it's passed, there will be a lake of fire. What is the purpose of that fire, according to what we've just read? To cleanse, to do away with the old heavens and the old earth so there can be made a new heavens and a new earth. And if someone doesn't want to be a part of the new one, what happens to them? What is it? Where does it say they were cast? Into this lake of fire. Can you see this imagery from the scriptures so far? But once again, I suggest all of this is future. But where? Where is it happening? According to this, it's happening in the future. Yes, but where? Here. It's when all of this is burned up. And the new heavens and the new earth are made. I want you to go back to the first page. I want to point out a word. Point out just one Hebrew word. Do you see where it says there in Deuteronomy 32, 22, that a fire is kindled in my anger and it burns to the lowest depths of the, what's that word? Grave. Do you see that word grave there? Everyone with me? Do you know what the Hebrew word there is? Sheol. Do you know what Hebrew word that is? Sometimes it's translated into the word what? Hell. And in the Middle Ages, do you know what they came up with to try to control behavior? I hate to say it that bluntly, but that's what it was for. Do you remember William Tyndale when he was translating the scriptures into English? Do you remember what the bishop said to him? The bishop said to Tyndale... There are fires on earth and there are fires in hell. 
make sure one is not needful to spare you the other. It was used to control people's what? Behavior. Behavior. Think about it. If you believe that any moment you could die and immediately be cast into burning, would that motivate you to live correctly? Think about it. Would it motivate you? It might. But who would you only be concerned for? Yourself. Would that put principle B in the place of principle A in your life? Or would that just encourage principle A? About me. Self-preservation. It's interesting, this word grave, the Hebrew word there is Sheol. Thirty. Go over to, to uh, the grace section. See where it says example? I'll give you another example of it. It says, Jacob said, then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, surely I will go down to what? Sheol in the, in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Now, when he said Sheol, what did he mean? The grave. But notice what it says there. In the Old Testament, 31 times the word hell is translated instead of Sheol. Are you with me? Sheol can also be translated into which English word have we seen in these two verses? The grave. Would it make sense to say that Jacob was going to go down to hell in mourning for his son? Why? Because Jacob was one of the three greats. Remember, whenever it refers to God, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob. We would expect when he died, he would go to where? According to popular view, he would go to where? To heaven, not hell. So there must be a different translation for Sheol than hell. Are you hearing me today? We wouldn't expect Jacob to go there. In Deuteronomy 32, we see that other way of translating it. It is the what? I would like to suggest to you that every time in the Old Testament the Hebrew word Sheol is used, it means simply the grave. That in the Middle Ages they came up with this idea of hell from Greek mythology. And it worked really well with what they were trying to perform back then, what they were trying to do. It was very convenient to create an underworld. We're under the crust of the earth. I mean, think about how foolish this is. An underworld. We live in a scientific age. We know now you can go as deep as you want to and you'll never find a place under the ground where there's a bunch of fire and the devil running around in a red jumpsuit and a pitchfork. And when people try to get out, he pokes them back in. Do you understand that? We know today. But did it work in the Middle Ages to say, oh, that's what Sheol is. Be careful you don't go that you need to do what we say or you'll end up going there. Did it work well for their purposes? Yes. But it works today too. What I want you to notice is that the Bible paints the destruction of the wicked into the future. It says it will take place at the same time that he's recreating this world as a new heaven and a new earth. In Psalms 37.20, let's figure out how long this fire will last. It says the wicked will, what does it say? Be tormented forever and ever. They will perish. 
And the enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. Psalms 37.10 says, Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. You will look carefully for his place, but he what? Will not be there. What has he done? According to Psalms 37, what has he done? He's vanished. Do you see that word used in Psalms 37.20? He's vanished. You'll look for his place, but he will not be there. Psalm 68.2 says, As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked, what? Perish before the Lord. Psalms 104.35 says, Let the sinners be, what's that word? Consumed from the earth. Let the wicked be no more. Look at Malachi 4. Behold, the day is taking place right now. The day is coming. Is this still future? Remember I told you, search from beginning to end. Every time they mention it, it's not a present event. It's a future one. The day is coming, burning like a furnace. And all the arrogant, the evildoer will be chaff. The day is coming that will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. It will leave neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will arise with healing in his wings. You will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked. What does it say? For they will be. What's that word? Ooh. Ashes. Under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord. Revelation 21, it says he will wipe away every tear from from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning, nor crying or pain. For the first things have passed away. What I want you to understand when we pursue an answer from the scriptures as to how long these fires will burn. However long we determine the fires will burn, the wicked are taught by some people to be tormented forever, eternally in those flames. But Malachi did not see this. Malachi saw them becoming what under our feet? Ashes. And if John said there would be no longer any pain, for the old things have passed away, how can you have eternal torment? And still have all pain and suffering coming to an end. We serve a God who does not want to prolong pain and suffering. He wants to end it. Are you hearing me? In Isaiah 66 it says they will go forth and look on the what? Talking about this day. Look on the what is a corpse? A person writhing miraculously being sustained while suspended in flames forever and ever. They will look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. Isaiah, Ezekiel 28 is another fascinating chapter. It says, Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities. This is about Lucifer, about Satan. It says, By the iniquity of thy traffic, therefore I will bring forth fire from the midst of thee. It shall what? Devour thee. I will bring thee to what? Ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. And they that know thee among the people shall be astonished at thee. Thou shalt be a terror and never shalt thou be any more. That's an incredible verse. I remember the first time I saw this verse, I thought, what on in the world? I thought hell was a place where people were going to be eternally tormented under the ground. And once again, if they tried to get out, who was there? He was like the overseer running around with a tail. 
And he had that long fork. He just poke him back in. But it says that he's not the overseer of some place such as this, that he'll be brought to what? To ashes. Ashes. Revelation 20, verse 9, it says, They came upon the broad plain of the earth. They surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. Fire came down from heaven and what? Devoured them. Does that sound like ashes to you? And yet there are verses, let's be honest, there are verses that talk about eternal fire, are there not? That talk about unquenchable fire. That talk about everlasting burning. And if we're going to be unbiased this afternoon, we need to be honest with the Scriptures, amen? So far, when when have we learned it will take place? Where have we learned it will take place? On the earth, all around us, to make room for the new heaven and the new earth. But how long so far have we seen it will last? How long do the, do the verses we've read so far, how long does it, do they seem to indicate the fire will last? Forever or for a time? For a time. But are there other verses that say forever? Oh, absolutely. And we need to be honest. Let's look at those. Second Thessalonians 1 verse 9 is the first one we're going to look at. It says these will pay a penalty of what kind of destruction? eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. I wish we had time to expound upon that, but I want you to circle that word presence. We've seen it before. What I also want you to do is notice what it is that they're suffering. It's the penalty of eternal what? Destruction. Let's look at this word, how it's used. Go over in your gray section a little ways up the side. Do you see where it says Hebrews 6 verse 12? Or is that a 9 verse 12? All the way to the top. 9 12. I can't see mine, so you'll have to help me. It says, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he obtained, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained what? Eternal redemption. Does this phrase eternal redemption mean that God will be redeeming people throughout eternity? Or does it mean that he redeemed them at the cross and the effects of that redemption last forever? Notice the next one. Mark 16. They went out and preached everywhere. While the Lord worked with them and confirmed and confirmed the word of the Lord by signs that followed. They promptly reported all the instructions to Peter and his companions. And after that, Jesus himself sent out through them from the east to the west, the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal what? Salvation. Eternal what? Eternal what? Does this mean that God is going to be saving people throughout eternity? Or does it mean that he saved them and the effects of that are eternal? Do you hear me? It'll never be undone. In Hebrews 6, 2, it says of instruction about washing and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal what? Does that mean that God is going to be sitting on a throne with the books open, eternally judging people throughout eternity? 
Or does eternal judgment take place and the results of that judgment are eternal? Do you understand what I'm, the point I'm making? Then when we say that the wicked will experience the penalty of eternal destruction, does that mean that God is going to be eternally destroying them? Or that he destroys them at one point in time and that the effects of that destruction are eternal. Do you see the point that's being made in how this language is used elsewhere in the Bible? In Mark 9, 43 and 44, Jesus said, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better to enter life crippled than to have your two hands and go into where? Hell into, what does it say? Unquenchable fire where their worm does not die. And what does it say? The fire is not what? Quenched. Does the Bible talk about unquenchable fire? But we need to be careful. Look at Jeremiah 17. If you do not listen to me through the keeping of the Sabbath day, keeping it holy by not carrying a load and coming in through the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it will devour the palaces of Jerusalem and not be what? What kind of fire destroyed Jerusalem? Unquenchable. Let's read about it. Look in your grace section over there. Second Chronicles 36. They burnt the house of God. They broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burnt all the palaces thereof with fire, destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. And them that had escaped from the sword carried he away to Babylon, where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia. What did we learn this morning happened in the kingdom of Persia? Remember? Oh, are you awake or was potluck too good? What happened in the kingdom of Persia? Do you remember? Yeah, there was a decree that went forth that began the 2300 years. Do you remember that? And they went back and they began that process. See, all the Bible's intertwined. It says, and all of this, all of this destruction by Babylon was to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of who? Jeremiah. Jeremiah. What had Jeremiah said? They'll be destroyed with what kind of fire? Are the fires that Babylon started still burning over there in Jerusalem today? No. But it was what? How do you what? What does that mean then? Let's not get there yet. Because it may surprise all of you. In Jude 1 verse 7, it says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since the same way as these indulged in gross immorality went after strange flesh, they are exhibited as an example and undergoing the punishment of what? Does the Bible talk about eternal fire? But it's interesting, Sodom and Gomorrah experienced eternal fire, did they not? And look what it says in Second Peter. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to what? Oh, catch the parallel. Did Sodom and Gomorrah experience unquenchable eternal fire? And were they brought to ashes? Are they still burning? Yes. Does the Bible say the... Sorry, no. Does the... Sorry. Does the... Do the wicked... Does the Bible say that the wicked will experience unquenchable eternal fire and yet they will be brought to ashes as well. Does the Bible say that? Are the fires of Sodom and Gomorrah still burning? 
No. Then can from this, and remember it's put forth as an example of what everlasting fire is all, all about. Would it be okay to assume that even though the Bible uses the phrase eternal fire, it does not mean that the literal flames will last forever, but that the effects of that fire will. Are you hearing me? You see, Ezekiel 20, look in your gray section. Says, say to the forest of the Negev, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm about to kindle a fire in you. It will consume every tree in you. As well as every dry tree, the blazing flame will not be quenched. The whole surface from south to north will be burned by it. All flesh will see that I am the Lord. I have kindled it. It shall not be what? Is it still burning today? So. These are the three terms that are used in regard to the fire we're discussing this afternoon. Unquenchable, eternal, and everlasting. And yet we look at places in history where this kind of fire has been used. And at one point, was it quenched? Was it? Did it go out? Is it still burning today? Are you sure it's not still burning today? Then why on earth does the Bible use these kind of terms for something that appears to be temporary, not eternal? Have you ever wondered that? Why does it say it then? It's more than that. I would like to suggest to you See, I laugh because I remember one day I was sitting at my desk. I remember sitting at my desk and I read a Bible verse that I'm about to share with you. And I about fell out of my chair. Because I'd never seen what the Bible really teaches on this subject. I would like to suggest to you that it's not just because the results are eternal that it calls it everlasting. It's because the Bible does talk about an everlasting eternal fire. But when it uses that phrase, it's not talking about a literal fire. It's using that language as a symbol. Let me explain to you why I first believe that. Every time this phrase has been used before, is the literal fire still burning? So this phrase, everlasting fire, is actually a symbol of not something that's a literal flame, but of something much deeper. Would you like to see what it's really referring to? Look with me, Paul, to Hebrews twelve twenty nine. It says, for our what? God is a what? Consuming fire. Is this literal? If you were to look up on the throne today, would you see a campfire sitting there on the chair? Is it literal? Or is this word fire being used symbolically of something much deeper? Are you hearing me? 
It's, there's a symbolic use of it. I sure hope there is, because look at Matthew 3. John said that he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, and he said to them, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does good, does not bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the what? The fire. As for me, I baptize with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, he is mightier than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and what? Please tell me there's a symbolic use for this word. Because if this is literal, we would expect to see Jesus going around picking up people by the scruff of their neck, carrying them over to big vats of flames and immersing them. Isn't that what baptism means? Immersing them in it. Do we ever see Jesus immersing people in literal vats of fire? But did he baptize them in something else? Ooh. It's interesting. He will burn up the chaff with what type of fire? No, what does it say here? With what kind of fire? Unquenchable. John used whatever Jesus was up to. John used the phrase unquenchable fire referring to it. Hmm. Jesus himself said in Luke twelve forty nine, I have come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already what? Was he talking about a literal flame? In 1 John 4, 8, it says God is what? Love. And let me teach you what the Bible teaches about this. Song of Solomon 8, 6 through 7. Put me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For what? Love is as strong as death. Its flashes are flashes of what? The very flame of the what? Of the Lord. Many waters cannot what? So what would we call it? Unquenchable. Nor will rivers overflow it. God's love is an everlasting, unquenchable fire that you cannot do enough to put out. You cannot change his love for you. Do you believe that this afternoon? It is unquenchable, everlasting, eternal. I've had some people try to convince me that when the Bible talks about eternal fire, it doesn't really mean everlasting. It doesn't really mean eternal. Everlasting, it's just a word. Please don't monkey with the definition of everlasting. I need everlasting to really mean forever. Do you know why? Because my Bible says he loves me with an everlasting love. And I am hoping that that is forever and ever and ever. It's not that we've misunderstood what everlasting is referring to. We've understood what the word fire is referring to. Are you hearing me this afternoon? It's not talking about a, a literal flame that's everlasting. How do we know that? Because Sodom and Gomorrah experienced God's everlasting flame. And is the literal fire still burning? Is Jerusalem still burning? Look at Romans 12.20. Paul says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. What will you be showing him if you do this? Love. Notice what he says. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his what? Literally? 
But what are you showing him in one word? Love. Is that the very flame of God which cannot be quenched? Is that the fire and brimstone that Revelation might be talking about? In Jeremiah 31, it says not only is it unquenchable, it says I have loved you with a what? Everlasting love. And Isaiah 33 is the verse that made me fall out of my chair. It says, now I will rise, says the Lord. I will be exalted. Now I will lift myself up. The sinners in Zion are what? Afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with the everlasting burnings? Put your handouts down. Who do we know from teachings? Who is going to end up in the everlasting burnings according to the Bible? The wicked and Satan. Are you sure? Are you sure? Are you positive? Oh, we've all been duped. We've all been deceived. Because Isaiah says it's not the wicked. It's not Satan. Who will dwell with the everlasting burnings? He who walks how? Righteously. He who speaks uprightly. He who despises the gain of oppressions, who gestures with his hands the refusing of bribes, who stops his ears for the hearing of bloodshed, shuts his eyes from seeing evil. Your eyes will see the king and his beauty. They will see the land that is far off, but your heart will meditate on terror. If that's the righteous, I'm trying to be a part of that group. I sure hope this isn't literal everlasting burnings. Are you hearing me? Now hear me. Notice the language. What two words are used? Who will dwell with the devouring fire? Who will dwell with the everlasting burnings? Who is the everlasting burnings? It's God and his love. Who's going to dwell there with him forever? You and me, the righteous. Remember Revelation 7, uh, one of those. 15 says that he sees those who are saved standing on a sea of glass mingled with what? Who's going to dwell with his everlasting love? Who's going to dwell there? You and I. What's going to happen to everyone else? They'll be consumed by it. Are you with me? They'll be turned to what? Ashes. We're all headed to the same place. Do you understand that? We're all headed to a full-blown encounter with the, in the presence of God. Full disclosure. We are all going to look into the eyes of our maker. Are you with me? But it's the same zip code. Some will be, for some, that encounter will be heaven. For some, that encounter will be hell. But is it the same place? Yes. And there will be those who dwell in those everlasting burnings forever. God's love will shine forth throughout eternity. That unquenchable, unchanging, everlasting love. And you and I will dwell in it. Amen. But others will be consumed by it. Yes, the Bible does teach about an everlasting fire, but it also says the wicked will be brought to ashes. They will not be eternally tormented in it. It's you and I. Understand. And maybe this will help you understand. The wicked. All of the wicked are going to heaven. And all of the righteous are going to hell. And that is not a slip of the tongue. Because heaven and hell are the same zip code. Are you with me? It's the presence of who? God. And what you feel towards him determines whether that presence is heaven or hell.
Remember, they will experience eternal destruction. Isn't that what Thessalonians said? But from what? From the presence of the Lord. Some will dwell in his presence. Some will be destroyed by it. But wow, isn't that incredible? I don't know about you, but I look forward to dwelling in those everlasting burnings. Amen. That's what it's all about. I want to be with him forever. And some will say, well, Herb, what about Revelation? Can I give you a word of caution about Revelation? If you take everything in the book of Revelation, literally, you're going to be in sorry shape. I mean, there are dragons and four headed beasts and seven headed beasts. There is all kinds of stuff in the book of Revelation that should not be taken literally. Are you hearing me this afternoon? They're all symbols. Has the Bible in other places talked about God's love with the symbol of everlasting burnings? Is God's love unquenchable? Is God's love eternal? Is God's love everlasting? Yes. And the symbol for that in other portions of Scripture has been everlasting, unquenchable, eternal what? Fire. Would it make sense if we were going to go into a book that is largely symbolic that that same love would also be symbolized by everlasting fire? Would it be? See, look with me to Revelation 14. It says he will be tormented with fire and what? Brimstone in the what's that word? Presence. Circle that word presence. No one's denying that for some being in God's presence will create torment. We all agree with that, correct? It says the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. But notice, this is what a lot of people have a hard time with. The smoke of their torment goes up for ever and what? Ever. They have no rest day or. That sounds like eternal torment, does it not? But understand where where John is quoting from. The first is Moses. Look in your grace section in Genesis 19. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the valley, and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. When, when Abraham walked out and he saw Sodom and Gomorrah the next morning, what was left? Just smoke and ashes. And that smoke was what? It was going, it was ascending. That's right. When it says their smoke will ascend forever and ever, what is it saying? Number one, that whatever destruction took place that day, it is what? It's forever. It's eternal. It'll never be undone. It's the final fate of those that are lost. Number two, notice where he's quoting in Isaiah 3, go 34. Go back to your regular section, Isaiah 34. This language had been used before. It says, the sword, my sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon who? Who are the Edomites? Descendants of Esau. Good. Its streams will be turned to pitch and its loose earth into brimstone. Its land will become burning pitch. It will not be quenched night or day and its smoke will go up for how long? From generation to generation it will be desolate. None will pass through it forever. Let me ask you, is the smoke of Edom still ascending today? So it's not talking about something literal. This is a symbol. Are you with me? Look at Revelation 20, verse 10. No, don't look there yet. Look at Deuteronomy 28. This no rest day or night, where is that taken from? In Deuteronomy 28, it says, Among those nations you shall find, what does it say? No rest. There will be no resting place for the sole of your foot. 
There the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes, despair of soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. You shall be in dread night and day. It's, you shall have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, would that it were evening. And at the evening you shall say, would that it were morning. Because of the dread of your heart which you dread. And for the sight of your eyes which you will what? I ask you, what are they seeing that creates such psychological and emotional torment? The day of wrath is a day of revelation. Do you remember that from last weekend? Who is it that they're encountering on that day? It's God. They're coming face to face. They're seeing Him in His fullness. And when they see the fullness of God, whom else do they see in its fullness? Themselves. And if you've seen a little bit of yourself, you only see, you've got a window into what that's going to be like. Without Jesus. To stand there without Jesus, without the assurance of forgiveness. I didn't say without forgiveness. Has God forgiven them in his heart even at that moment? But without the assurance of that forgiveness in their own heart, they will stand there in the full realization of every wrong they have ever committed and the psychological and emotional torment will be great. They will have no rest day or night. Are you with me? But will it last forever? When Jesus bore that, what did it do to him? It crushed out his life. And when the wicked bear it, what will it do to them? Place them in eternal torment? The greatest example of hell that I can give you today. It's the cross of Calvary. Was there physical suffering involved at the cross? But what was it that ended Christ's life? Would he suffered physically or psychologically and emotionally? And for years, hear me, if all you see at the cross is what Jesus suffered physically, do you really have a clue what he was going through there? And for years, all Christianity has focused on is the physical suffering of those who will be lost. And they've linked to it and said that physical suffering will last for how long? The Bible doesn't teach this. The Bible teaches that, yes, there's an everlasting burning, an everlasting fire. But the wicked are going to be brought to ashes. They're not going to be physically tormented forever at the end of this age. They will not be tormented day in and day out. They will suffer psychological and emotional torment. But then their life will be what? It'll be gone. It'll be done. Revelation 20. Yes, I know in the book of Revelation... It says the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone and where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night for how long? Forever and ever. I understand this, but be careful. Are we to take the beast as literal? Are we to take the false prophet as literal? Are we? Be a literal animal, a literal beast that God picks up and throws into the fire? Is that what's going on here? How much of this are we to take literal and how much are we to take symbolic? I don't know, but I will say this in Ezekiel, when it's not speaking, when it's not speaking symbolically, but literally, it says you were in Eden, the garden of God. You were the anointed cherub who covered. I placed you there. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities. It says, I'll bring a fire from the midst of thee. It shall devour thee. I will bring thee to what? Ashes. He says, literally, he will bring Lucifer to what? Ashes. In Revelation, a symbolic book, it talks about eternal torment. Yes, but we need to be careful. Is that book symbolic? Is it? Yes. Let's sum up and let's close. 
Second Peter 3.10 says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief, a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up and all these things will be dissolved. The heaven will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we look for a new heavens and a new earth. I don't want to be misunderstood this afternoon. Will there be a literal fire in the end? Yes. Was there a little literal fire with Sodom and Gomorrah? Was there a little literal fire with the destruction of Jerusalem? Yes, but when we look at the literal flames, have they ever lasted forever when they said they would? No. What does it mean when it talks about eternal or everlasting fire? What is that? A literal flame? It's God's what? His love that you and I will dwell in for eternity. But don't get me wrong, there will be a literal fire. And if it's the symbolic fire, if it's the revelation of God's love in contrast with their sin and all the guilt and torment, if that's what ends their life, what's the purpose then of a literal fire? Why does God need a literal fire? Ever wondered that? Look at Leviticus 10. Here's an example of it. Talks about Nadab and Abihu. It says fire came out from the presence of the Lord. And what? And what? And what? What does consume mean? Burn them up. How much are left? How much is left? If fire broke out from God and consumed them, how much is left? You sure? You sure? Why does it say that they died and then they came forward and carried them still in their tunics outside the camp, as Moses had said? It consumed them. That means it ends what? It ends their life. They were laying there a what? A dead corpse, a body. What's it going to be like when in the presence of God, when he returns, all of the wicked are dead bodies? What would be the purpose of a literal fire at that point? To just clean up the mess. God does not want to torment you forever and ever. Job 3 says, why is light given to him who suffers and life to the bitter of soul who long for death, but there is none and dig for it more than hidden treasures who rejoice greatly and exalt when they find the grave was Joel more gracious. Sorry, Job more gracious and merciful than God. Would Job deny this to those who were being tormented? Would Job deny death for those who longed for it? And is he more merciful than God? In Proverbs 8.36, remember it says, He who sins against me injures who? Himself. It's your sins that will destroy you that day. Do you understand how? In the presence of God, what do they create in you psychologically and emotionally? Torment. And what did that torment do to Jesus when he bore it? It killed him. Will it crush out your life too? Romans 2.12, it says, All who have sinned without the law will be eternally tormented without the law. Is that what it says? It will perish. In Romans 6.23, it says, The wages of sin is to be eternally tormented, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is that what it says? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth hath eternal life. Is that what it says? Whosoever believeth have eternal life. We don't just have it naturally. Are you with me? 
See, some people teach this. Some people teach that the soul is naturally immortal, don't they? This didn't come from the Bible. It came from Greek mythology. Because look at Ezekiel 18. It says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins will what? Jesus said, don't fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body where? What will be destroyed in those flames in the end? Just the soul, just the body? Also the what? The soul. It won't live forever. First Timothy says that God alone possesses immortality. First Timothy 1.17 over into the, in the gray section, it says, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. Psalms 146 says, do not trust in princes in what kind of man? When someone says, God save your immortal soul. Have you ever heard that phrase before? There's no such thing. Your soul is mortal and God can bring it to an end. And he will one day. The greatest example we have of God's hatred of torment is Genesis 3.22. It says, the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out and take from the tree of life and live. How does it say? Once you've become self-centered, once you've become, once you've imbibed principle A instead of principle B. Do you remember that from today? You must not be, if you cannot be redeemed from A to B, you must not be allowed to live forever. Why? Because to live forever, when you are bent on only living for yourself, that is not pleasure. That is eternal torment, is it not? And if someone is lost at last, it's not because God is barring the way and saying, you can't come in. It's because if they were to come in, if God were to permit them to live with Him forever, living in His presence forever, being self-centered, what would that constantly produce in you psychologically and emotionally? Torment. It is because God doesn't believe in eternal torment that all, that not all people are led into the kingdom. It is in mercy to those that are lost that they are, they're destroyed. Some say, well, Herb, why does he have to destroy him? Why can't he just put him on a planet somewhere? Let him just, you know, do their thing. That's right. Sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? Let's imagine in the end they're at the day of judgment and someone stands up and says, whoa, 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 hold on, God, we just thought of an idea. Don't wipe us out. Why don't you go ahead and give us immortality, give us eternal life, but just stick us on our own planet. Quarantine us. We don't want to mess with your mamby pamby heaven. Just give us eternal life. God says, well, that's a good idea. I hadn't thought of that. Let's do it. And so he takes us unredeemed, unregenerated, unchanged. He takes humanity, self-centered, selfish humanity, and he sticks them on a planet where only the only thing anybody ever cares about is themselves and says they'll live forever now. They're given immortality. What happens on that planet? They can say they contract cancer, but they can't die. There are accidents, but they can't die. 
There are attempted murders, but they can't die. Walk around with a big hole in them the rest of their existence. What would life be like on a planet that was given immortality, but whose base principles were only self-centeredness always? What would that be but eternal torment? It is because our God does not believe in eternal torment that the wicked are destroyed. God is love. And he doesn't want to hurt them. He takes no pleasure in their, in their loss. He doesn't take any joy in punishing them eternity after eternity after eternity. He simply reveals his love. And by that goodness, it destroys the evil. They are consumed by that everlasting fire. And they perish. Obadiah says they will drink and they will what? What did Jesus drink for you and me? Did Jesus use this kind of language? Did he in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was dying for you and me? Did he use this language of drinking? Let this cup pass from me. Has Jesus drank that cup for every human being? But the Bible says there will be those who want to drink it themselves. They will drink and they will swallow. And what does it say? They will become as if they had never what? Does that sound like eternal torment to you? Man. I'll just raise the objection because I'm going to get it anyways. I'd close and let you go get refreshments, but we'll do that. But I'd get this in the basket anyways. So we'd have to answer it in 10 minutes or I'll answer it now. Every time I present this, someone asks, well, Herb, what about the rich man and Lazarus? You ever heard that parable before? Matter of fact, I, I just threw it. I got so tired of hearing about it. I just threw it on here. It's in Luke 16. You can look it up later. It always comes up. So let's just bring it up. All right. Luke 16. What's the parable? Lazarus and the rich man die. Lazarus was a poor man. The rich man was a. That's why they call him rich man in the parable, right? It's a no brainer. Lazarus dies. Where does he go? No, he doesn't go to heaven. Read the parable. He goes to Abraham's bosom. How do you spell bosom? Thanks. I just want to make sure. There's a nest in there somewhere. He goes to Abraham's bosom. Where does the rich man go? What kind of hell? Everlasting what? Everlasting fire. Sounds like Greek mythology, actually. Were the Jews already being influenced by the Greeks? And could Jesus have been using their language to prove a point? Their understanding could he have been? How do we know that Jesus was using how they viewed death? And what happens after death rather than what's actually true. How do we know that Jesus was using, was trying to reach them where they were at in the way that they thought about it rather than what's actually true? How do we know that? Is that how it really is? Is that really how it is? When you die, you're going to go to Abraham's bosom? Well, heaven's not heaven for Abraham. God gets no personal space of his own for eternity. 
Or is that how the Jews saw it? Are you here? Is this how the Jews saw it, though? So was Jesus, was Jesus telling us how it really is in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? Or was he using how the Jews saw it to tell a deeper lesson? Are you hearing me? Are you hearing me? That's how we know it's not reality. Is this a symbol of the real? For the Jews, was this a symbol of the real? Then be consistent. Would this also be a symbol of the real? Would this be, is this to be taken literally or symbolically? Then we need to be consistent. This side must also be taken how? Symbolically. And has the Bible ever used everlasting fire? Not literally, but symbolically in the past. And so is Jesus being just consistent with the rest of Scripture? Yes, over and over again, I do not deny that the Bible talks about an everlasting burning. But it cannot be talking about literal flame. Why? Because Isaiah says, you and I are going to spend eternity in it. Does the Bible use fire as a symbol for other things? And specifically in the Song of Solomon, what does it say is the unquenchable flame of the Lord? What is it? It's his what? It's his love. Will you and I dwell in that forever? What will happen to the wicked? They will be as though Obadiah says it. They never what? Existed. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness this afternoon. Thank you so much for your love. And Lord, as we move past this topic, Father, I want to thank you first that nobody is right now being tormented in some literal fire somewhere. Lord, we haven't said anything about where they are. I'm just thankful they're not there. Lord, I thank you that they're being reserved for that day. But also, God, I thank you that you are not the way the church painted you to be in the Middle Ages. That what the Bible truly teaches is that you are not interested in punishing people for their sin, but saving them from it. What a good God. That even when those are lost, are lost at last, they will not be cast into an endless round of suffering on type of suffering, but you in your mercy will simply end their life. Father, it is a sad thing that anyone should be lost, but Lord, it is even a graver injustice to you to say that you would torment them forever for only 40 to 80 years of rebellion. Father, teach us to see what you're really like. In your precious name we pray. Amen. We're going to take a 15-minute break. Come back at 4 o'clock, and I'll let you out by 4.30, I hope. I'll do my best. Enjoy your refreshments. Make sure you get your outline for the next meeting.